For those of you who are remaining, I would encourage you to open your copies of God's Word to Paul's letter to the Corinthians. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians 12, continuing our march. Here's really my hope, is that we are going to get through 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14 before we hit Thanksgiving. That's my goal. And then in the four weeks of our Advent season, I just want to spend four weeks marinating in 1 Corinthians 15 of considering the, the glorious promise of our future resurrection and of Christ, our first fruits. And so you may give consideration to those things. Pray for me as I prepare, but Lord willing, that's where we're going to go. And then we'll finish out the year in Paul's book. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 1 to 31. Hear now the reading of God's word. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says, Jesus is accursed. And no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except in the Holy Spirit. Now, there are a varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by the one Spirit. To another, the working of miracles. And to another, prophecy. To another, the ability to distinguish between spirits. To another, various kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. All of these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one Spirit we were baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and we're made to drink of one Spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but many. And if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, well, then that would not make it any less part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, well, then I don't belong to the body. Well, that wouldn't make it any less part of the body. And if the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. 
God has appointed in the church first apostles, and second prophets, third teachers, then miracles and gifts of healing, helping, administration, and various kinds of tongues. But are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But earnestly desire the higher gifts and I will show you still a more excellent way. Well, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. What is the body? You can tell by the reading that that's the theme that that courses throughout the chapter. What is the body? It's strange language, isn't it? And when you and I consider our own bodies, we consider perhaps the various parts that are very different from one another, that legs are not arms and hands are not feet and ears are not eyes, and yet our bodies compose a kind of organic unity. And Paul is going to, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, use the same imagery to describe the nature of our fellowship together as a church. A whole lot of different people given a lot of different gifts by the Holy Spirit that are yet one body We consider, for instance, how many gifts there are. We've seen just by way of setting up the chapter, we saw a variety of of gifts that were listed here at the beginning of the chapter, at the end of the chapter. There's seven lists in the next three chapters alone, and there's several other lists given elsewhere, just as we saw in Romans chapter 12, for instance. And I don't think any of these are ultimately designed to be exhaustive, but they're illustrative. They're illustrative of the work of the Spirit and the life of the church, to equip the saints to build up the body according to the needs of that body at any given time. What is each gift? Well, that's naturally a question that comes up for each one of us. We want to think about tongues and, and prophecy and all those kinds of things. And one of the things that makes passages like this, in fact, really chapters 12 through 14, is challenging to preach and to understand as they are is that no glossary with definitions is given. For this passage, there's In fact, if you notice the point of the passage, there's really no need to define them here. We'll think about them more clearly later on when we get to chapter 13 and especially chapter 14, where Paul focuses more intently on what they are and how they're to be used. But I also want you to consider that even in chapter 12, as the Apostle Paul is correcting and recalibrating this church to become a church that is increasing in love for one another, that you and I can't know all the circumstances that were going on in the body at the time. We don't know everything that was going on in a sense. By by reading Paul's letter, we are, in a sense, hearing only one end of a somewhat tense phone call partway through, not really knowing what's going on on the other hand. So, So what is it that we can know? What do we know from the letter? We saw earlier in our series in chapters 1 through 4 that they were a divided church. They loved the wisdom of the world, and they loved being seen and being exalted, exalting themselves by attaching themselves to worldly wisdom. And here in chapter 12, what we find is really just another manifestation of a love of worldly wisdom, of self-exalting, me-centered worldly wisdom. It's the kind of attitude that 
that embodies the competitiveness that we see perhaps in the world, the kind of competitiveness that says, I think I'm a little bit better than you, or maybe even the insecurity that looks around at those to our right and to our left and goes, there's no way I'm as good as that guy. So their competition, well, it was a special kind of worldliness, the kind that only Christians can participate in. It was a kind of varsity versus junior varsity Christians, those who are really spiritual and those who are maybe not quite as spiritual as the super spiritual ones. Certain members believe that their gift was given to them for them rather than for the church. They were proud and they looked down their noses at one another. Some would say, for, for instance, in verse 21, I have no need of you, which only naturally made others in the church conclude, well, then I must not belong after all. If those are the kinds of gifts that God exalts, that God uses, then what good am I to the body? Paul is going to correct all of these things, and he's going to move them toward thinking differently about the way that they've been gifted and what they're for. So really, chapter 12 is setting us up for the rest of the chapters that follow. It's giving us the, the calibrating framework to think about what exactly is the church, what are the gifts for, how are they to be used, and that sets us up to think really well about chapters 13 and 14. We're going to see in our, in our chapter here, chapter 12, three things. First of all, in verses 1 through 3, we're going to see a foundational truth, namely that all Christians are spiritual. All Christians are spiritual. That's verses 1 through 3. And then in verses 4 through 26, we're going to see a second point that builds on and explains that first point. That is namely that spiritual people are all made into one body, that spiritual people all kinds of spiritual people are made into one body, that there's unity. And then finally, in verses 27 to 31, therefore, here's the conclusion or the application. Therefore, he's going to say, desire bodybuilding gifts. You want to desire those gifts that are all about bodybuilding. So you might look like Josh Chavez one day. Desire those bodybuilding gifts. In all of these, one big idea permeates the chapter, and it's this. One God gives each member different gifts to build up Christ's one church. One God gives each member different gifts to build up Christ's one body. That's the main idea. Now, here's why I give you sermons in a sentence, because this is one of those passages where, at least as a pastor... It's really easy to want to latch on to things that we're really interested in in the passage, questions that we have that the chapter itself may not necessarily be inclined to answer, questions about certain kinds of gifts and what they are and how they're to be used, et cetera, et cetera. And so one of the reasons why we need to identify what exactly is this chapter all about, why is this chapter here is to guard us against our own curiosities from taking our own frameworks and poking them into the text itself and missing what it is that God would have us know from this passage as he's inspired it. 
This passage ultimately is not about explaining what certain gifts are and how they work. They assume, the passage assumes that a variety of gifts are given. Paul illustrates what a number of those gifts are, but the main point of the passage is that in all of this diversity, with all of these varying gifts, there's going to be temptations towards superiority and a feeling inferior, but that is contrary to who we are in Christ. We are one body in Him, and that is the big bullet, that single bullet that he's aiming to shoot right at the congregation. So let's not get weeded. That may, that may be disappointing to some of you. You're like, listen, I'm really hoping that Pastor Jeff is going to go in on, on tongues and prophecy and healings and all these kinds of things. How would you think about these things? We'll get to that. You're just going to have to put that on the shelf for now. We'll get there when the text is talking about those things. Namely, in chapter 14 will be especially helpful. So just be patient. Because right now, Paul is trying to calibrate us to think about the church in a uniquely spiritual and a godly way. One God gives each member different gifts to build up Christ's one body. Well, let's consider each one of these point by point. Verses 1 through 3, all Christians are spiritual. That's Paul's point here. In verse 1, notice, he doesn't want them to be uninformed. I don't know what's happened. Maybe they've forgotten truths that they had already been taught. So in verse 2, he reminds them of their past life of worshiping idols. Ironically, idols that don't even talk. That's the folly of idolatry. Those who can talk and think and act and power and create worship things that can do none of those things. It's the folly of idolatry. And he goes, that is what God has redeemed you from in verse 2. But then in verse 3, we really find the heart of the chapter. Therefore, he says, no one ever says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. What he's saying is that it's impossible for a God-hater to say Jesus is Lord to be saved and to orient his whole life around that confession and still hate God. You might be able to fake it for any amount of time, but eventually, time and truth are best friends, and those make-believers will be exposed. He won't be able to do it apart from the regenerating and the illumining ministry of the Spirit. But if you're Christian, he says, if you're Christian, then according to verse 3, you are spiritual. That you are one who has been brought by God's grace to confess Jesus as Lord. And the only way that you've been able to do that, to believe it and orient your life around it, is through the ministry of the Holy Spirit whom Christ has given to you. It's in his power that you have a new heart. It's in his power that you're able to confess Jesus as Lord. It's in his power that you would be conformed into the image of Christ. And in this way, the indwelling ministry and presence of the Holy Spirit is true for every single Christian, that if you say Jesus is Lord, believe it and orient your life around it, then you have the Holy Spirit and you are spiritual. All Christians are spiritual. Why is this important? Because if you're a Christian, you're spiritual. And if you're spiritual, you're a Christian. There's no second class. Beyond that, there's no higher spiritual stage to attain to. There's no on-fire level of spirituality that's higher than the one that every other Christian enjoys. The Spirit is the great spiritual leveler, and we all have Him indwelling us, sealing us, 
and gifting us. And so here, just briefly, I do need to address the elephant in the room. Some churches and Christian movements lean toward this kind of two-stage spirituality. That when you're converted, you're baptized in the Holy Spirit, but later on, perhaps through some crisis moment or through some greater act of faith, you receive a second baptism. And in that second baptism, you receive certain kinds of gifts, like the speaking of tongues, perhaps, that are especially unique to those who have reached maybe a higher level of spirituality through that second baptism. There's other similar uh, kinds of traditions that would deny a second baptism, but would still say that there's kind of a second level. That when you're converted, you're indwelt by the Spirit, but later on, you are then filled with the Spirit. Now being filled with the Spirit, you can attain to a higher kind of spirituality. We've already discussed this all the way back in chapter 2 and chapter 3. That kind of two-tier spirituality of varsity and junior varsity spiritual life has no bearing in the Scriptures whatsoever. And so I had a friend who was part of uh, a more charismatic or, or a more Pentecostal tradition. And listen, let me just say before I begin, uh, I think they're true brothers and sisters within this tradition. I think they, they mean well in spite of our disagreements. We should pray for them, enjoy them. We should call them brother and sister. But I do think that there are some errors believed and practiced that are detrimental to the church. So my friend who grew up in... Uh, a more Pentecostal tradition told me story after story of these deeply held underlying spiritual leveling up at every single meeting that he would attend. Some of you have grown up in churches like that. And perhaps you've even thought, why can't I get a little bit of what others have? When am I going to get that? Well, Paul's thesis in verse 3, as we keep that in mind, I think that should make us really sad. We should be sad for any Christian who's been made to believe that they're less spiritual than others because they've not yet received certain kinds of gifts. In fact, verse 3 should make us all sad about it because it not only harms the individual Christian and undermines their assurance, but it splits the body of Christ. And we should pray that such division, that division that divides the churches into the haves and the have-nots, well, we need to pray that that would never happen here at Covenant Baptist. Because as we'll talk about here in just a minute, there may be other spiritual gifts that we're inclined to exalt and that we need to guard against doing the same. And so indeed, it's sad that issues around spiritual gifts tend to divide our generation because ultimately, what are their purpose? Look down at verse 25. The purpose of the spiritual gifts is to care for one another, that there would be no partiality in that care. It would be equal care. Later on in chapter 14, these gifts, he say, are for building one another up. It's for edifying. It's for unifying. Let me just say in our own tradition, being critical of our Pentecostal friends may be easy, but I wonder if there's any way that we might stray from the truth of verse 3. In what ways can we be tempted to value some gifts over others? We, we would consider ourselves people who love the Bible and we love theology and sound doctrine. That's good, and it is commendable. The Bible, the Bible commends it to us. And yet, is it ever possible that, that we might look at those who have a gift of teaching in our church and go, well, I could never do that. 
And so I must be some kind of junior varsity in this church. What, what role do I have? Where do I fit in? Oh, beloved, we need to be especially careful from any kind of notion that would assume that only the teachers wear the varsity jackets in the church. That's not the way that it works. And so in verses 4 through 26, how does it work? Well, Paul's going to explain. And he's brilliantly going to show us that there are no varsity Christians and there's no varsity Christianity. There are Christians who are spiritual and everyone who is spiritual, that is, indwelt with the Holy Spirit, is a Christian, gifted by God in unique ways, in diverse ways, for the building up of the body of Christ. And the point of the passage is really simple. As we consider from verse 4 all the way down, it's that unity, that Christ establishes unity in the midst of diversity. That leads us to our second point, beginning in verse 4, that spiritual people are made into one body. In verses 4 through 6, the Apostle Paul focuses, notice, not on the gifts ultimately, but on the gift giver. Verse 4, the Spirit. Verse 5, the Lord, that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 6, God, speaking of the Father. Every person of the Trinity is united as one God, working together to build up the church by the giving of spiritual gifts. And he gives them generously, he gives them indiscriminately to the members of his church. And so the question Paul's asking is, how can any of us then be boastful about something that we've received as a gift, as if we've earned it or attained to it? ourselves, about something that all of us have been given. All of us have been given gifts. And so none of us, if we have children, look around. I mean, we're tempted in our own sin, right? At Christmas, you grow up as a child, and, and maybe you have brothers and sisters, and, and you're opening up gifts around the Christmas tree, and you look around, and you start doing that math in your head. Wait a minute. I think they got one more present than me. I wonder if that cost a little bit more than me. And you miss the fact that everybody here was given gifts. Everybody here rejoices because nothing that you received on this day, you deserved. It was all given to you by the benevolent grace of mom and dad. And you better recognize. But I want you to notice how easy it is to see the unity throughout the passage. Again, in verses four through six, it's the same spirit. It's the same Lord, it's the same God, one united Trinitarian God who at the end of verse 6 empowers not just some, but all in everyone. No exceptions. There are no haves and have-nots. Everyone in the church, if they're spiritual, is a have, is Paul's point. We see the same thing down in verse 11. Notice that, empowered by the same spirit. Verses 12 and 13, the body is one. We see that language of all, three times, all, all, all. Again, in verse 20, one body. The language is clearly universal. Unity dominates the chapter, and that's what we're meant to see. And beneath that unity, then, is a diversity Unity dominates. It's the controlling theme. But within that unity, there is a glorious diversity. Verses four to six again, notice that. There are varieties of gifts, varieties of services, varieties of activities. And in verses seven to 10, as you scan through that, notice that Paul isn't giving us ultimately a comprehensive list of gifts. That's what we often want him to do because that works on our bubble sheets really well. 
but it's to illustrate God-given diversity in the church. Notice, to one, and then to another, and another, and another, and another, and another. Verse 11, who apportions to each one individually. Verse 12, many members. Verse 20, many parts. Unity and diversity. One body, many parts. Beloved, you realize this is why the church is so very special. The world longs for true unity with diversity. Our culture aspires to this kind of unity all the time. Think about John Lennon's words. I hope one day you'll join us and the world will be as one. Or even think about our politics. We presume to be the United States of America. Or perhaps we consider the United Nations presumably working together in the pursuit of global peace. Or the, or the Olympic slogan. Think about that. And it's five rings. Faster, higher, stronger on steroids. We won't talk about that. Faster, higher, stronger, together. It's a promotion of unity. But I want you to notice in verse 13 what the gospel does. It does what the world and the Olympics and the United Nations and the United States can never do. Not even John Lennon and the Beatles could pull it off. Verse 13, it unites diverse people in Christ's body, the church. He says, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, all were made to drink of one spirit. Unity is a universal language because it is a universal longing of the human heart. It is a good thing to desire. But the world can't square it because ultimately they're not united as one body and one spirit, one Lord, one God. Only the gospel of Jesus Christ can accomplish this. And we see it only in true churches who are always imperfectly and yet aiming with God's grace to submit themselves to the truth of the gospel. Utterly unique in the world. Totally special. That's what God is doing. And it's a foretaste some tiny little foretaste of what God is going to bring about in his new heavens and his new earth. We are a new creation. Wouldn't our neighbors love to tap in to that kind of unity? And the answer is they can. Friend, if you're here and you are investigating Christian things, there might be evidence in your life, whether in school or at work, or even in your own political views where you find that so much of what you long for and desire is driven and motivated by a desire for unity, even the bringing together of diverse parts in a one coalesced reality. I want to submit to you that the only thing that can bring that about is not going to be any political party. It's not going to be any man-made philosophy it is going to be the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the good news of what God has done and the person and the work of his son Jesus from the love that he has for you and the rest of the world as we just read earlier in our assurance of pardon 
that he might come and perfectly submit himself to the Father, even to the point of death, the very death that you and I deserve because of our own sins and of raising again from the dead, of being exalted to the right hand of God who created you. And that same Lord Jesus Christ has been given power over all things such that every Every tongue will confess him as Lord and every knee will bow to him, including yours, either in love and adoration or in submission and condemnation at the end of the age. Friend, God holds out to you the key to the thing that your heart loves and longs for most in Christ the forgiveness of sins, adoption into his family, the gift of his Holy Spirit, and of the uniting of you and your person to a body who is with and for one another, which is what we're going to see. A little foretaste of what heaven is going to be like. Oh, friend, I pray that you would repent and trust in Christ as he holds these things out to you. To the rest of us, I just wonder what kind of applications from these first handful of verses might we walk away with? I wonder how many of you perhaps have ever felt a deeper kinship with other Christians of other ethnicities and nationalities from other parts of the world than you do with your own non-Christian blood relatives. And you've heard the phrase that I have more in common, perhaps, with my Pakistani Christian brother than I have with my American family member who might vote the same way that I do. And that's true. Why? Because we've all got one Lord and been given one spirit, and we've been brought into his one body, the church, made visible in a bunch of local churches like ours. And so that connection that we feel with those brothers and sisters is evidence of the unity that we enjoy in Christ through the Spirit. But secondly, we also need to consider the nature of our own gifts. We tend, I think, to hyper-focus on what our own gifts are. What are my gifts? What are, how has God gifted me? And, and I think that's a shame. Because in the end, beloved, they're not your gifts. They're God's gifts. He gives them. They're for his glory and for the good of his people. They don't ultimately belong to us, but they belong to the church, and that's the nature of our communion that we enjoy with one another. Even more importantly, this chapter is not about figuring out how I'm gifted. This chapter is ultimately about recognizing one another's gifts, how he's gifted the whole body. It gets our eyes off of ourselves and looks around at our fellow brothers and sisters to consider the way that the Spirit has uniquely gifted each one of us to build up the body. And so the question isn't, first, what gifts do I have? But as I look around, I, I want to ask the question, what kind of gifts do y'all have? We're a body, and a body needs every part working properly. But even as we think about those things, beginning in verse 14 all the way through 26, there are two dangers, twin dangers that you and I need to be aware of. And there's going to be dangers for inferior people, those who consider themselves inferior. We'll see that in verses 14 to 20. And there's going to be dangers to those who consider themselves superior. We're going to see that in verses 21 to 26. For those who consider themselves inferior, we see it's those who look around at the body and consider their own gifts and say, 
Well, because I'm not like a hand, I don't belong to the body. Because I'm not like them, gifted the way they are, I don't belong. Because I'm different or my gifts aren't as noticeable or spectacular or as attractive to to others, then, then I don't really belong here. What role do I have to play So Paul's abstract example here of the body, it's it's as if the body parts are saying, because I don't do what that part does, because the ear says of the eye, because I can't see, because the hand says of the foot, because I can't walk, at least for long, long distances. It says, then I don't matter. I wonder, beloved, does that describe you? Have you ever sat in these seats? And considered some of the other saints around you and the way that God has gifted them. And you've thought, well, I'm not like that person. And God certainly hasn't gifted me that way. And rather than celebrate how the Lord has gifted those brothers and sisters for the building up of the church, you turn in on yourself. You become insecure. And you think, what good am I? Why do I even show up? Do I make any difference whatsoever? Oh, beloved, you do, because you're a spiritual person, and God has given everyone gifts, including you. So rejoice in the gifts of others. Don't compare yourself. That's always dangerous. And remember that if you're a Christian, you're spiritual. We need you, and you may not necessarily preach or host or administrate, and that's okay. There aren't varsity gifts, and there aren't junior varsity gifts. There are only God's gifts, and all of God's gifts build up the body some of which may seem more demonstrable than others, but I guarantee you, beloved, listen to me, when we stand before the Lord Jesus Christ at the end of the age, there will not be any individual member of his body who will be exalted by the the risen Christ more than any other. Oh, that we might be found to be faithful stewards of whatever he's given us for the sake of building up the body, rejecting envy and insecurity and self-pity, and rather rejoicing in the varied gifts of the body wherever we see them. So instead of looking left and right, beloved, look up. Look up at what God has done. They're His gifts, and this is His church. But beginning in verse 21, he also brings up those superior people, those people who think, as we see here, I can do all of this without the rest of you gunking everything up. You're slowing us, slowing us down. You see that there? I have no need of you. He goes, consider your body again. Consider how silly it is that the eye cannot say the hand, I have no need of you because if the eye sees something, how is it going to pick it up? In the same way, he says, can the head say to the feet, I have no need of you. The head may look around to the right and the left and see where it needs to go, but if it has no ability to go where it's looking, then it's, then it's useless. It all fits together perfectly in the way that it's supposed to. That's the point there in verses 21 and and 22. And yet at the same time, we might be tempted to think in a sense of superiority as we consider our own gifts and our own service to the church, of the number of attaboys that we get for the things that we do compared to others, that we might look around and see others as, verse 22, weaker, We might consider others, verse 23, as less honorable. And so what or who is he talking about? And the answer is really we're all tempted to think in in our own kind of pride and and sense of superiority that 
that some of us are just more honorable than others, more spiritual than others, that we're spiritually better than others. But I want you to notice verse 22, the language. It's not merely that some are weaker and some are less honorable. It's that some, verse 22, seem weaker to us. Verse 23, it's that we think some are less honorable. It seems that way because we see with the eyes of the flesh and not through the lenses of God's word about the reality of who our brothers and sisters are in Christ. We're all spiritual. And we think they're less honorable because our own minds and our own hearts have not been calibrated according to the truth of God regarding the nature of his church and of its members. And we're wrong in what we what seems apparent to us, and we're mistaken in what we think if it leads to a sense of superiority. Because the reality is, is that even though some may seem weaker, and even though some may seem less honorable, every single body part, including the appendix, though nobody knows what it is, plays some harmonious role in the whole body. You realize that? We get so caught up on which gift is better than the others that we lose sight of the whole church as one. And we do the same thing. It's as if arguing over which body part is better than others rather than, praise God, I have a whole body that works together perfectly the way that it's supposed to. Well, maybe not perfectly on this side of the resurrection, but you know what I mean. Verse 25, but notice this, that God gives honor to those who are without honor. And he's done so in order that we be united rather than divided. Our temptation is to take those that seem less honorable, that we think are weaker, and to give them less honor and to dismiss them. But God gives them greater honor. As I said at the end of the age, the Lord Jesus Christ is not going to look at his saints and divide us up according to the spectacular gifts. Good job, guys. And the less spectacular gifts... Oh, what could have been? We're all Christians. One Lord, one spirit, one body. And in that day, regardless of what our gifts seem to be or what others may think they are, they're God's gifts given to us for the building of his body. And the body is what's of highest importance. The body is our focus. And that's why verse 25, all the members, rather than being divided, receive the same care. You realize that's ultimately why you've been gifted, is to cooperate as a joyful proprietor in the life of this church so that every member receives the same care. And every member in our church cannot receive the same care if every member is gifted the exact same way. That's the deformity that we see there in verse Where is it? Well, I just lost it. Oh, all the way back up in verse 17. That's a Frankenstein version. Imagine a body only filled with ears (laughs) or only covered in eyes. That's really weird. Looks like something from the book of Revelation. Because that's not how it works. If the whole body is to receive equal care, all disciples discipling, no undiscipled disciples, no partiality, everyone being built up, that it requires all kinds of gifts that come from God for our good. So you might be asking now as we get to the end of this section, how do I know what my gifts are then? I think that's a perfectly legitimate question, and I'm going to make this really simple, and you don't need a bubble sheet for it. You need to ask two questions. 
As I look around at the church, what needs to be done and can I do it? What needs to be done and can I do it? You'll be surprised at the way that the Holy Spirit has gifted you for service to the church when you jump in the trenches and aim to serve the body. What needs to be done? Who needs to be served? What needs need to be met? And can you do it? Can you see a need and meet a need? And as you do that, you're going to see emerging ways that the Holy Spirit has strengthened you or given you wisdom or given you insight for the building up of the body alongside other brothers and sisters. See a need, meet a need, find out your gift. It's really not that mystical. Serve the body, and the Spirit will strengthen you for service as he does for all of us. Well, that leads us to our final point, verses 27 to the end of the chapter. Therefore, if the body is the goal, if ultimately the body and unity in the body and the same care for all the members is really what we're after, therefore, he says, finally desire those body-building gifts. In the Corinthian church, there was, a, there was a distortion in the use of tongues. And that may not really be our problem in this church, but I think it's worth asking. We might discuss in our one another groups or if you go to guys night or whatever it may be, it might be worth discussing if there was any kind of distortion in our church, what would it be? What would that distortion be? And we need to root it out because we need to get rid of that distortion in order that we might build up the body so that we might recognize, as we see in verses 29 to 30, that in God's wisdom, not all are the same. All kinds of different gifts, including different offices, all for the building up of one in the same body, and that is a good thing. How could we ever exalt one over the rest? And so Paul tells them in verse 31 to earnestly desire the higher gifts. And what he means there is not ultimately, listen, if you really want to exalt yourself, if you really want to be something, if you really want to attain to a higher life, then you need to get one of those good gifts. What he's saying is you need to aspire and to pray for and labor that you might have those gifts that aim to build up the body of Christ. The whole aim of the chapter is coming to this end. The body is the goal. The building up of the body, the strengthening of the church, equal care to every member, that's the goal. Earnestly desire whatever gift would help you do that. That's what he's saying. And he's going to go more into that in verses in chapters 13 and 14. So with that in mind, keeping the body imagery, let me conclude with this. There's three things that we need to avoid and one thing we need to embrace. Three things to avoid, one thing to embrace. And I'm going to use body imagery for all of them. So hang with me. Number one, avoid amputation. Avoid amputation. I wonder if you've ever seen a church like this. People cutting themselves off, perhaps by walking into the back of the church after church begins, leaving before it ends, no meaningful role in the body. They've deprived the body of their gifts. They've functionally amputated themselves from the body, and as a result, the body is weaker. We need to avoid amputation. And we avoid amputation by recognizing that that though perhaps I'm not gifted in the way that other saints here may be gifted, I am gifted because I'm spiritual and a Christian, and I'm going to linger to the best of my ability and serve to the best of my ability and trust the Spirit to strengthen me for service in such a way that I'd be able to strengthen the body rather than weaken it through amputating myself from it. 
Secondly, avoid elephantiasis. That is, some of you might say elephantitis. That is where one part of the body grows bigger than it should. It's a gross enlargement in which members with certain gifts think of themselves in overly inflated terms. And so some of you might go to the gym and you can see immediately that's the guy that only does the upper body and he always skips leg day. Impressive shoulders, right? He's got delts like softballs, skinny little legs. And you go, that's disproportionate. And he's not going to be as effective as a result. The whole body needs to be built up equally. We need to try to avoid, avoid those kinds of imbalances. It's not good for everybody to have the same gifts or same handful of gifts. We need a diversity of gifts in the spirit so that the whole body might be built up. I've been especially convicted by this. I've had more than one person come to me and encourage me to try to get things off of my plate and delegate it to other saints in the body that, that more saints in the body would be able to serve the body in ministry. And I think that's a valid criticism of my own ministry. So that's because I don't have the gift of administration, I think. And that's obvious to some of you. And yet I wonder how much of that, as I think about it, I wonder how much of it is, is just kind of an elephantiasis pride in my own heart that really just thinks I can do everything as well or better than anybody. So I might as well do it and I deprive others of using their gifts for the sake of the body. Beloved, let none of us do that. We need to avoid that to celebrate that none of us is a Swiss army knife of spiritual gifts Rather, we are a whole body with diverse members with many gifts to cooperate together as joyful proprietors in the building up of the church. Third, we've said avoid amputation, avoid elephantiasis, avoid paralysis. Sometimes a church has parts that never really seem to get used. Members just look at how they can be served rather than to serve and they're frozen in place. They become a drag on the rest of the body, and it's always the same committed few that do everything each week. It's the old adage that 20% of the church does 80% of the work. It's those people that see needs in the church, whether through email or online, things that need to be net, met, and they think in the back of their mind, well, I sure am busy. I hope somebody else does that. In all of these ways... Not only do we gas our fellow Christians, that 20%, but we deprive the body of our own gifts. We need to lean in, see needs, and meet needs. Now listen, there are some times where a body part is injured, isn't it? We get injuries in our own body part. We sprain knees or break ankles or whatever it may be. And so there's times when a part of the body needs to be rested, some of you have come out of difficult backgrounds. You're enduring challenging relationships. You've come from church backgrounds that perhaps have wounded you in some significant way, and you're a little gun-shy about pressing back into the service of the church. You don't want to get hurt again, or you've lost confidence in how God might be able to use you. But beloved, I want you to recognize that there's a danger in that. Namely, that when some parts of the body favor itself 
for fear of getting hurt again, that part of the body will atrophy and get paralyzed from non-use. And as time passes, it will only get harder and harder and harder to exercise your gift for the sake of the body. It's the way it was when I tore my ACL in my right knee, heroically playing flag football. And they put me in a leg immobilizer. And I left it on too long. As I moved from one doctor to the next, and my leg, which was already not a whole lot of anything, just went whoop, just like that, just shriveled up. And I took it off and And I met with a second doctor, and he said, listen, if you want to have surgery on your ACL, you're going to have to rehab your knee before I can give you surgery because your leg's not strong enough to do it. So I have to go rehab, and I can barely bend my knee. It's so stiff. My leg is so atrophied. I can't even, like, bend down one way like that. I'm having to rebuild everything, and it was hard work. And I think there are some members of the body that are like that. They get frozen in place for one fear or another, and they will not engage or re-engage. And beloved, if that's you, on the one hand, I am so sympathetic to the ways that you've been wounded. But at the same time, if you sit too long, then beware that you become atrophied or that you become paralyzed altogether. Next one. There was four of them, not three. Fourth. Avoid arthritis. That's where one bone rubs against the other and causes pain. And you can see why Paul is going to rebuke them in this in chapter 13. We'll get there next week. And that's because love is ultimately what floods the use of our gifts. It's the only thing that lasts. At the end of verse 13, not hope. Hope doesn't last. Not faith. Faith doesn't last. At one point, hope is going to be realized and faith is going to give way to sight. But love is going to endure forever. And that is what is meant to be manifested in our service of one another If you're a Christian, you're spiritual. If you're spiritual, you've been given a gift. And that gift is not for you, but it is for the body. But an arthritic church has forgotten that gifts are for serving others. And in the aim of serving ourselves, there there is friction and conflict. The church gets arthritic. And it ceases to function the way that it was designed. So, beloved, in all of these ways, we need to avoid these kinds of spiritually speaking, body-harming diseases, and we need to aim for one thing, that we would desire to build up the body. Bodybuilding is the goal. Growing up together, we want to be a fit, healthy, God-glorifying body building for the last day together, and we need every single one of you to do that. There's no varsity, there's no junior varsity, there are those that are spiritual, and there are those who are not. There are Christians, and there are not Christians. And if you're a Christian, then you're spiritual, and if you're spiritual, then the Holy Spirit will uniquely gift you to build up this church for as long as you're here, for the glory of God and the good of the fellow members. So why wouldn't you want to build up this body for as long as the Lord has you here? That is is the aim of chapter 12. Desire to build up the body. Look around at other people's gifts and go, oh, praise God, look at those gifts. Aren't those amazing? Look at the way it's building up the body. Look at those needs. I see that need. 
I'm going to do whatever I can to meet that need. And as I meet that need, I'm going to trust the Spirit to strengthen me along with other brothers and sisters to meet that need. And the whole body builds itself up in love. Each member receiving equal care. That's the goal. Pray with me to that end.